0: Greetings, one and all. Welcome back for another Naval History edition of the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Eric Mills, Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine. Glad to have you back with us. We've got a very timely historical topic to look at today, um, as all eyes are on the Pacific Rim and um, the geostrategic events that inspire there that um, are drawing much naval attention these days. Um, And it's a perfect example of the lessons of history and a lesson that's applicable to today's um, Indo-Pacific region is what happened in late 1941, early 1942, as the Japanese juggernaut um, just rolled right down and pretty much rolled over everything in its path. And standing in the way of that was a vainglorious attempt at um, an allied resistance between different commands. And well, there wasn't much they could have done perhaps, but there are lessons to be found therein. And those lessons are in the second prize-winning um, essay in this year's CNO Naval History Essay Contest, which appears in the current April issue of Naval History Magazine. High to recommend it. It's not only um, great history, it's um, got some great lessons for today as well. And here to talk about it is Andrew K. Blackley joining us again. Hello, Andy. Great to see you again.
1: Good morning. Glad to be here, Eric. Thank you.
0: I will remind readers that viewers that um, Andy was the second prize winner in last year's Naval History Essay Contest as well. So. Who knows? Maybe he'll do a historic hat trick. Um, third, third
1: time's a charm, maybe.
0: Yes. But then again, um, better than a hat trick would be to win first prize. So, Absolutely. Well, you know, best of luck to you. Um, and I hope you'll enter again this year because you've clearly put some good entries in there. This is a really great article and um, something that I think, think is timely for people who look to history for its lessons. Um, why don't you discuss for us? Before we talk about the ill-fated ABDA command, ABDA command, which is the subject today, I wanted to kind of prelude that by looking at uh, an interoperability issue between services of just the U.S. Uh, And it was a stacked deck, certainly, in the South Pacific at this point, in late 1941, early 42. But you've got Douglas MacArthur um, running the U.S., Army forces of the Far East out of the Philippines, and you've got Vice Admiral Thomas Hart um, in command of the Asiatic fleet. They depend on each other for something they're both ha- hoping the other can supply for them in the face of this um, pending Japanese advance. Um, and I feel like the the failure of that interoperability is kind of a precursor to the larger interoperability difficulties between the allied countries. So why don't you talk to us about the MacArthur and part dynamic
1: of it. Okay. Well, a little bit of a prelude to that is that um, even in the 1920s and 30s, the the Navy and the Army were um, doing joint studies together in the what would become or part of War Plan Orange. War Plan Orange had been around since 1907 in various formats, and it seemed to change almost every other year depending on who was the CNO or who was the commander of the Pacific Fleet or who was the president was and what their current policies were. So, they, it was always sort of a foregone conclusion that the Philippines were would fall to 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 the Japanese to a Japanese onslaught. That they they uh, looking back on the lessons of uh, of the First Sino-Japanese War and the Russo-Japanese War, the U.S. Navy and and, and army as well were well uh, were very well acquainted with the fact that the Japanese were very capable fighters. They had a powerful navy, a powerful army. And that uh, the defense of the Philippines was be a, would be a far far gone conclusion. That the best they could do is slow down the Japanese advance to give the Pacific Fleet time to move from uh, the western United States to the Philippines. And this was always a big debate in War Plan Orange whether they were going to go do what was called a through ticket, do a quick movement to from the west coast to Manila. And remember, this is a time in the '30s before uh, Pearl Harbor was was the actual uh, base of the um, u.s fleet most of the u.s fleet was still in the atlantic ocean um, so there was this old dichotomy if you will between the army being tasked with defending the indefensible in the philippines and the navy uh, assuming that whatever they did there was going to be lost uh, so they were very reluctant to, to give much in the way of forces to to heart in, in the Asiatic fleet. The Asiatic fleet was just there to kind of slow the Japanese down a little bit and, and then retreat as fast as they could. Um, so, But in 1941, when war looked imminent, uh, for a variety of, of reasons, um, maybe even some home politics in the United States, I think Franklin Roosevelt was more than happy to see uh, MacArthur uh, hold up in the Philippines as long as he could keep him there. Uh, or in the Pacific, or for that matter, during the war, because he was always a potential political adversary. So MacArthur went in, into the Philippines. At, MacArthur retired in in 1935-36, and he was hired by uh, the Philippines to to become their army. He was given the grand title of Field Marshal of the Philippine Army, and um, he was supposed to train it and get it ready to defend the Philippines against any any sort of onslaught. Uh, the U.S. Navy, of course, had a base for a long time at Cavite there in uh, in Manila Bay, and that's where Hart's uh, Asiatic fleet was stationed. He had one modern cruiser, the Houston light cruiser, and a collection of older destroyers, uh, 29 or so uh, submarines. Some of them were the newer ones, some of them were the older S-type, um, and, uh, and so the theory then was that Hart would would sortie out from uh, his base with the submarines. He really had no surface fleet to, to speak of. He could not have st- stood up very long against the Japanese surface fleet. But the submarines are supposed to go out and, and attack any any transports coming in and sink them. Um, and at the same time, then the Philippine army would meet the invaders on the beach and and uh, hopefully throw them back into the sea. And that, of course, when when the Japanese invaded, that did not happen. Uh, the second day, uh, December 8th, uh, the Japanese had bombed uh, Clark Field and destroyed the uh, U.S. Uh, Far East Air, uh, air Force on the, pretty much on the ground. Uh, the Navy, as a result, had no air cover. There were no carriers anywhere in the area. Uh, there was no Marine or, or naval aviation in, uh, to, be, to be to speak of in that area. So Hart was without any sort of air cover. His submarines, and this was pointed out in, in the one article that you referenced, or I referenced in there as well, that appeared last year uh, on the failure of the submarines uh, in in, um, in early 1942. That for a variety of reasons they did not practice tactics in deep water. Instead, that they were going to operate in the shallow water around Luzon, and uh, that left them extremely vulnerable to air attack. Uh, unbeknownst to them the Japanese had also developed a pretty effective version of of uh, echo ranging, a sort of a sonar um, they later on would copy German and British sonar designs but they had a good design at that time as well and so they had pretty effective anti-submarine techniques uh, worked out so the upshot of all that is that um, uh, there was really the, the the fall of the Philippines had always been considered a foregone conclusion, and that the best that could be done uh, would be to retreat to Bataan and uh, try to hold off the Japanese as long as possible. And that always had been part of uh, American uh, planning. Um, so the Japanese just uh, you know, pretty much conformed to what the planners had expected them to do. Um, what they didn't expect them to do was to attack simultaneously at uh, various locations. So they attacked not only Pearl Harbor, and that in itself is a whole other story, Uh, they didn't expect the Japanese to combine all their carriers into one unit, the kudo butai, this uh, conglomeration of carriers. American carrier doctrine said that you kept the carriers separate from each other. Uh, They didn't expect the Japanese to attack uh, Hong Kong and Singapore at the same time. Um, They were hoping that the Japanese would attack one of these outposts individually to to trigger things and they could bring forces into the theater. There were uh, US troops already on their way to the Philippines that then had to be rerouted to Australia, Uh, and they they eventually were the force that MacArthur had under his command uh, in the New Guinea campaign later on in 1942. So the the Japanese were extremely well-trained at this point. They had been at war since 1937 in China, Their aviators at the time were probably the best trained in the world. They had some excellent aircraft at that time, state of the art. Uh, The British and Americans had older aircraft, P-40s, were probably in the right hands, uh, were comparable to a zero. Uh, The Allies also had old Brewster Buffaloes and Hurricanes that were just not quite up to the the caliber of a zero fighter, especially one in in well-trained hands. so you know as a result then the the allies were were sort of already um on the back leg so then on top of that the idea that you could defend singapore uh as an as an advanced base was something that that the british based their entire um uh, defense strategy for with this melee barrier this this barrier that would keep the japanese out of the indian ocean that would be formed by the by the uh Malay peninsula going down into uh into the dutch east indies that that would be a barrier that would keep the japanese from threatening uh, uh britain's uh, indian empire the um the, the fall down for all that, of course, was that the British, when they established Singapore, didn't <laughs> expect that they also were going to be fighting a desperate fight in the North Atlantic and the Mediterranean at the same time. They didn't expect that the French would, uh, would have surrendered to the Germans and that the Vichy French would have allowed the, the, the Japanese to occupy uh, Indochina. Uh, That was a big surprise to both British and American planners. Nobody had thought about that, that that was even a possibility. Um, So the British, and as a result, had, you know, Churchill was always pushing to get more capital ships uh, into the Pacific. He had very few to spare. Uh, He did get the U.S. Navy to agree to send some ships into the Mediterranean so that he could release the few units that he could, the Prince of Wales and the Repulse. So the U.S. Navy did help. This is before the war actually started, or initially when the there was this planning was in place beginning in 1940. There was some joint planning between the British and the Americans, and at that time the British were offering uh, Singapore as a advanced base for the U.S. fleet, and of course uh, King and the other planners um, uh, there in Washington said, "No, thank you. We're not going to do that. We're not going to one. We're not going to divide our fleet like that, and and that's just." too far away for, for us to be able to defend it, the logistics of it would be impossible. And they didn't think, they said once that the French uh, allowed the Japanese into, um, into Indochina that it would be extremely difficult to defend. Uh, and in fact, um, even in the 1920s, uh, Admiral Herbert W. Richmond of the Royal Navy had been the, the commander there of their, of their fleet uh, there in the Far East. And he had done some studies and done some landing operations. And he could also concluded that uh, Singapore could not be defended uh, against a against a landing. And the only way it could be possibly could be defended would be to have air power that could provide air cover for your naval forces. And unfortunately, that just did not happen. Uh, there was a m- bad miscommunication to talk about uh, interoperability between joint between which should have been joint forces the raf and the royal navy did not communicate very well uh, admiral uh, sir tom phillips the commander of the of force z uh, thought he would have air cover uh, when he sortied out from singapore uh, on 10th of december to interrupt the landings uh, on the Malay peninsula and the raf did not show up uh, or, the, or they showed up late and were and were pushed away. Uh, as a result, the Japanese executed a masterful attack on on the Prince of Wales, with torpedo bombers coming in from two different directions uh, and and that both the Prince of Wales and the repulse were quickly hit and sunk. Uh, so as a result, the landings went on unopposed. the you know the British had these and one of the things I point out in the article is that, the Allies operated under some pre-war paradigms, or they grossly misunderstood the capabilities of the Japanese. I mean, the British even thought that the Japanese were, were spectacles and they were nearsighted and they could never be good flyers. Uh, I mean, they had these you know, basically racist um, uh, ideas about how the Japanese would fight or, or couldn't fight. And they were, they were shown to be totally incorrect. The Japanese are extremely capable fighters.
0: Singapore certainly put the lie to all that. Um, I don't think anybody expected Singapore to fall so quickly and so easily. I think that was the real shock to the system, more than the Philippines and all that. Um, And that also marks the sort of beginning of the end of this um, uh, joint allied attempt at a command, uh, does it not? Let's talk about the formation of um, the... ABDACOM, how they came about and um, the battle the battle that it fought and uh, the great shortcomings that nobody foresaw when they put this thing together. Granted, this is happening in the exigencies of wartime, but that's just more of a lesson to learn to plan these things in advance. But uh, you know, why don't you talk us through the birth and short um, and eventful life of the ABDACOM
1: yeah, so it, it was um, born, as you say, out of necessity and almost like a second thought. They, the Allies met uh, in Washington, in starting in December of 1941, late December 41. Uh, Winston Churchill came over to the United States. They had the uh, what's called the uh, Arcadia Conference. Uh, all the top planners were there. The British uh, brought their joint chiefs there as well. And in order to strategize how they were going to to fight the war, And of course, uh, to them, uh, to the British certainly, the main threat was uh, Germany, and uh, they were immediately concerned, obviously, with the Battle of the Atlantic. And their forces at the time were tied up in North Africa, um, so to them, the the main thrust had to be had to be had to be Germany. Once Germany was dealt with, then they would. Uh, turn and, and devote their energies to, to fighting Japan. Now, of course, um, Ernie King was in, in on these, and even though he agreed to that uh, Germany First strategy, he still was uh, a dyed-in-the-wool Pacific uh, Navy guy, and he knew that uh, and he very much wanted some sort of offensive to take place in the Pacific. And that was always part of War Plan Orange on when the, when the balloon went up, uh, the U.S. Navy would be mobilized and start moving across the Pacific. Well, with the fleet knocked out at Pearl Harbor, that just uh, was not going to happen. So they had to go on some kind of defensive uh, posture. So they created this command. The, the, Dutch, um, the Dutch, of course, had been overrun in 1940. Uh, the, royal, the, the, the royalty, the, 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 I, guess, I think it was the Queen of the Netherlands, was in Great Britain. Uh, but they still had their overseas possessions in the Caribbean and and here in the Far East um, to defend. Uh, The British also had their own, had their interests to defend as well. So their military forces of both the United, of the Allies, the the Dutch, the British, and the Americans were very much wrapped up in defending their individual territories. Um, So they had to come up with some idea of, of coordinating uh, the defense of of these areas to form this melee barrier. So they came up with the idea of this would be under the command of uh, General Sir Archibald Wavell, who had been the commander of British forces in North Africa, where he actually had he had been relieved by Churchill. Churchill was famous for shuffling his generals around in North Africa, and Wavell was one of the first ones to go, but he had What's not remembered well about him is that he was responsible for uh, defeating the Italian army in North Africa in in uh, in 1941 and and wrapping up uh, the Italian army almost completely and pushing them uh, back into Libya. The Italians had invaded Egypt, uh, and he was doing a splendid job until Churchill moved a lot of the Eighth Army into Crete and and uh, Greece. They were pushed out of there. Eventually, came back to North Africa. So the all the whole upshot of that was that when Rommel came in, and he defeated Wavell in a battle, the Crusader battle in 1941, he was replaced by Churchill. Churchill made him. Uh, Wavell is a very competent man, but he, so he put him in charge of the defense of India. So he would be the logical guy there in the Far East to head up this 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 sort of early version of uh, of an indo-pacific command he he, he would be the uh, the leader of the military forces, the overall uh, theater commander uh, in the far east. Um, they agreed then and that was an idea that actually was pushed forward by uh, King and roosevelt and uh, and Churchill gladly accepted that idea. Churchill in turn said, well let's have the the naval commander be the your head of your Asiatic fleet, uh, Admiral Tommy Hart and they agreed to that uh sort of the dutch were kind of uh, pushed to the side a little bit It just was assumed that they would go along with whatever the british and americans decided on their behalf and in truth they were never very happy about that at all so um do we have the the american british dutch australian command or as an australian historian told me it's really the australian british dutch american command oh so how <laughs> Depending on how you want to read the acronym, uh, so that was that was established. Wavell um, then flew into uh, into Singapore in in early January of, of 1942 to try to organize defenses there. Unfortunately, as, as Singapore started to fall apart, uh, you know he then had to had to withdraw out of out of that command out of that area and relocate uh into java so they relocated the headquarters to java um again the the air forces uh, in this command were still um were pretty much second i hate to were, i think we pretty much second-rate units compared to the japanese uh, the japanese always maintained um, an offensive initiative they always had the element of surprise going for them they could they could determine where they were going to attack and how they were going to attack and the Allies were, were in a defensive posture. They really were not capable of offensive operations. They did try some offensive operations, of course, with the combined fleet, uh, the combined squadron that was put together uh, under Hart's command. And you had the one, the Battle of uh, Balik Papan, uh, where there was that's the only small victory that, that this combined force achieved. They did manage to destroy some Japanese transports and. Uh, as they were attempting to take over the um, oil refinery there on Sumatra. Uh, nevertheless, the the combined force had to withdraw, and they really did not stop the Japanese from from taking over the oil supplies that they wanted. Um, later yeah, we had this
0: article on that last year. Yes, that's right.
1: So that, that was referenced in there in in this article as well. So. So basically, you had a, a naval force that. Uh, Was had no air cover that really could only safely operate at nighttime, and this was something that's interesting to note that the Japanese had resorted to this later in the in the war as well when they lost air supremacy uh, against uh, compared to the United States in the Solomon Island later Solomon Island campaigns and in the Central Pacific, they could only resort to nighttime air attack because if they came out in the daytime they would have been creamed by uh, U.S. carrier forces. Um, so, but at this time we didn't have any air power whatsoever to cover, uh, the combined forces, the combined naval force. And as a result, there were several naval battles, which turned out disastrously for the, for the command, um, in the battle of the Java Sea, where we lost, you know, the De Reuter. so what we didn't talk about was that, uh, there was political machinations going on in Washington. MacArthur was furious with, with Thomas Hart for not defending what he believed, not de- adequately keeping the Japanese transports away from the Philippines. Uh, the Dutch embassy uh, were not happy now that since the command, since the British were pretty much knocked out of the picture with the fall of Singapore and the command was relocated to Java, the Dutch said, hey, this is now our thing. And they wanted to be in, in overall command of the operation. Which the the British and the Americans said, okay, it's it's now yours. And so they replaced Hart as the command they, with Helfrich, Helfrich uh, the Dutch admiral, um, and his some, his commander was um, uh, Dorman. And so Dorman was was his flagship was the the De Reuter, the famous named after the famous Dutch admiral mm-hmm. uh, from the. The wars with uh, in, a, in, a tour, in the in the Stuart in the Stuart era back in the 17th century. Uh, so at any rate, the um, this force was caught out again and sunk by a combination of Japanese air power and long lance torpedoes, and that pretty much put a, put an end to any kind of naval defense that they had. And at that point, it was, it was just a matter of time before the the Japanese took over Java. They pushed. Um, the remaining American and British forces retreated to Australia and pretty much the Dutch capitulated and the Japanese took over uh, uh, all the Malay Peninsula and all of, um, of the Dutch East Indies. And at so that much point, for the Malay barrier. Right, the Malay barrier. And they actually penetrated it. They sent a carrier fleet uh, into the Indian Ocean. And the British had an older force of battleships that they kept in uh, Madagascar, knowing that they could not possibly, uh, come up against this, this Japanese carrier forces, and so the Japanese bombed, uh, C- what's now Sri Lanka, Ceylon, uh, and, but they, the Japanese were not really prepared to, for extended operations in the Indian Ocean at that time, so they, they penetrated it, they turned around and came back, so they, they were, um, if anything else, it may have helped the United States at Coral Sea, because, they were busy some of the japanese naval strength was playing games in the indian ocean mm-hmm. while we were starting to um uh, to do our probing around in in uh, the solomon island area and luckily a lot of their strength was gone when during the battle of the coral sea so that was that was maybe one slight glimmer of uh, silver lining in all this
0: so they cut through all the defenses like butter i think um they, they were almost surprised to already have access to the Indian Ocean, so they kind of dabble into there, but they don't go too far into it because it's almost like they got there quicker than they would have thought. The defenses in front of them, the ABDA command, pretty much they just rolled over them. Um, it's a, it, it's the it's a I want to say about about Pardon me?
1: I was going to say that sometimes you uh, people come up with these um, – alternative histories you know what if the japanese had pushed all the way through and what if they would linked up with the germans and all these other crazy ideas i mean the japanese the germans the italians they had extremely they're they they had no interoperability whatsoever i mean mm-hmm. not, not in any meaningful kind of, at all they were constantly uh they were not cooperating in, in any way shape or form so there was never any chance that that there was going to be this link up uh the japanese just were not prepared uh, they just have the logistic ability. They they pretty much shot their bolt in 1942, and you know they they did not have the the productive capacity of, of the United States and and its allies. Uh, and you know this the funny thing these are all things that had been talked about before the war, and the and the Japanese were Yamamoto was well aware that if they didn't get the United States to negotiate. Uh, in 1942 that they were going to be in for a long war that they probably would eventually lose.
0: Mhm. So this was their moment in the sun as you say from about 42 on um they're not going to be able to keep up with us in terms of war production personnel etc cetera, etc cetera. eventually it all comes you know comes to that uh but this was their moment it was almost sort of their um the, the equivalent of the blitzkrieg in Europe you know as their blitzkrieg moment you know and, and They took maximum advantage of it. Uh, Singapore, gone, Philippines, gone. Um, Just one thing after another, falling like dominoes. There are a lot of lessons here. Um, There's a lot of um, compelling material here for people who are strategists who are looking at the world as it is today. And you go into quite a few of those at the end of your article. And um, I invite you to share some of those with us today.
1: Right, so I think what I say in the article that we there's a template. Um, fortunately, unlike 1941-42, uh, we do have the the U.S. Pacific Command is still located uh, in Hawaii. We have a strong base in Hawaii. We have strong bases in Guam, um, uh, and so the inheritor of the what, had, what was Sink Pack, or more maybe more accurately, the Nimitz was also the Commander in Chief of the Pacific Ocean Area. That would be analogous to the indo indo today. Uh, so we have a four-star admiral out there now, uh, and what I'm and I'm not, a, I'm not an expert in in what is going on in the at any given moment in the Pacific. I only know what I read in in the in the USNI news and uh, in, in proceedings. Um, but so what I'm suggesting in the article is that. The um, the United States and its allies adopt a uh, an idea of co-locating some of their military commanders with the U.S. headquarters in in Hawaii, uh, so that there is this familiarity of of doctrine and tactics and materiel uh, before um, before the balloon goes up before before and really it's the whole point of it is not to not to fight a war but to really be a deterrence from aggressive action from uh from the chinese communist party who really rule china and and the military forces um, so I mean, we're starting to see some of that now the um uh, the uh AUK US, the australian u k uh, american uh uh pact to build uh, Uh, or transfer technology to Australia so they can build submarines. Now, recently, we see that we're talking about selling some of our older uh, Virginia class uh, boomers to the Australians uh, so that they can get trained on that in the meantime. um, We're seeing the Philippines is is opening up additional bases. So there had been a a deep animosity for a long time between the United States and and the Philippines. uh, in the last 20 some years, but that seems to be breaking down now as the Philip, as the Philippine government sees the Chinese push into the South China sea. Uh, so there's, so that that's, those are good developments.
0: Uh, and seeing- our former foe from world war two, who we're talking about today is now on our side in this pending standoff. So, yeah,
1: so the, 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 in the news in USNI news last week, and, and I mentioned this during the conference we were at, uh, the Japanese Air Force, for the first time since uh, 1944, uh, landed aircraft on Tinian Island. Um, so, and it's, it's even that. more uh, poignant when you think, and this is pointed out in, in the article, that they had, um, the Japanese pilots went and saw the um, the, play, the pit where they loaded uh, the atomic bomb into the Gay there on the runway. That's still there. That's been preserved. Wow. Uh, so and it's kind of cool because the, the the U.S. there were U.S. Australian ground forces uh, with working with uh, Japanese uh, air uh, ground crew to uh, resurface uh, a runway there on Tinian Island so that that can be used for training purposes. So yeah, it's and I think it's time. My personal opinion is that. I think the Japanese are not the militaristic people that they were 70, 80 years ago. They're a, a democratic nation, and I think they can be trusted uh, with with military force. Um, and I think that they need to be encouraged to do that, to be to take up uh, more of a defensive burden. Um, I know that uh, it's funny because uh, we were talking ahead of time. I'm working on a biography of Raymond Spruance, and and he um, he always was very sort of sympathetic to the Japanese. He liked the Japanese as a people, and he said uh, afterwards he said if I ever had to have an ally in a war, I'd want to have the Japanese as my ally. Uh, he was thinking about in the, in the in some future Cold War. So that's sort well, of uh, maybe prophetic to some degree.
0: It's very prescient, uh, especially in the heat of a war where you're fighting these very people. That's pretty far far seeing, you know. Well. Um, I feel like I'd like to think that the navies that we're lined up with, include and our navy as well, are more prepared for something—a contingency. God forbid it may occur in that neck of the woods. Um, I don't think that allies will be caught as off guard this go round. But let's um, let's just uh, war game it. What if the worst case scenario happens? What if um, that dangling pendant off the coast of China that they will never forget about finally gets invaded by mainland China? What happens then if China moves on to Taiwan? (laughs) Excuse me, tries to cross the Tries
1: Well, so, and I know in studying amphibious operations that the U.S. did in the Central Pacific, uh, in in the 1940s, that it takes overwhelming force to do it successfully. So when we attacked um, islands or Tarawa uh, or in Eniwetok uh, uh, or Saipan, we had forces that outnumbered the defenders on on a scale of like four to five, seven to one. I mean, a tremendous advantage. You know, 30, 35,000 U.S. troops against four or five thousand defenders. Uh, overwhelming naval and air superiority uh, in order to protect the landing forces. so that's something that that the chinese and the Chinese are studying our Pacific operations very carefully right now. i mean there there's a popular book right now coming out that came out in China that's been translated into English where they are uh, looking back at the at our battles uh, with the Japanese and the Solomons and the central Pacific uh to draw lessons uh for amphibious operations so they're thinking very seriously of how to do that and what the cost of that might be so i think the 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 key to the defense of taiwan is one the willingness of the taiwanese to defend themselves and that is not entirely clear Uh, and it's not clear that they're buying the right weapon systems to do that the other thing is then is to make it so to to the chinese that it's so costly uh, to attempt that kind of operation that, um, that you deter them from ever thinking of doing it. So as of today, I mean, there's articles left, right, and center about how we, the United States, is lacking industrial capacity to build uh, ammunition reloads. Right now, the, we're sending so much stuff to, um, to the Ukraine, and as we should, in my opinion. Uh, that we are left with very short supply of our own reloads for just uh, uh, marine artillery, for example, um, and the same thing is probably true for iron bombs and and other things. So you know we don't have the we don't have the kind of huge industry that we had in 1940-41. And you have to remember that uh, that in the 1930s, the as as a means of increasing um, uh, job sources or employment in the Depression, uh, Franklin Roosevelt and his administration pushed through these bills uh, under the idea of industrial uh, uh, policy of rebuilding the United States Navy. Uh, and, in, and in 1940, they started laying down, you know, the keels of what would be the new fast battleships and the new fast carriers. And they were doing that years in advance of any of the war actually occurring. So we don't have that ability today. If the war started tomorrow, we would be—we um, would—it would be a tough situation for the U.S. Navy. Um,
0: so and um, that's a little worrisome, isn't it? Because clearly China is aware that we're low on ammo right now, <clears throat> and you, you have to wonder how that's factoring into their thinking in terms of timeliness and whatnot. This is all, of course, speculation, folks, but it's fascinating food and thought.
1: But like the one place where we do have a, a huge edge is that, and that is in uh, undersea, under submarine forces. So um, with attack submarines and things of that nature. But then, you know, when the waters in Taiwan are, are on the, in the strait are pretty shallow. They don't lend themselves that, that well to deep submarine operations. So you'd be, you know, we'd be fighting a war with them. Our carriers would have to be located you know, thousands of kilometers away from China to get beyond their 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 salvo of their missile, of their land-based missiles. That's another lesson from the Pacific War, the importance of land-based aviation or air power. And now it's, it translates into, into uh, missiles. And so, you know, the Chinese can just keep shooting salvo after salvo of missiles at a carrier fleet. And at some point, our anti-aircraft ammunition runs out and we don't have the means of replenishing that unit at sea they have to withdraw and and go back to into the into into pearl basically to reload we don't have the ability to to re, uh, replenish ammunition at sea that we that we developed in in 1944-45 those are all and those these are all things that are appearing in uh in uh in the usa and news and articles and proceedings in. um War on the Rocks or Commander Salamander, wherever you re- come across these things, everybody's making the same points. And um, the Chinese are reading these things as well. You know, if, we, if they're not classified, if we have access to it, they're certainly uh, looking at it as well.
0: Well, of course they are for sure. And I, th- the most telling thing that's come out of the last few minutes of conversing is how in planning for what they're going to do going forward, or hypothetically, looking at the different possibilities of what could happen going forward for China. It's very interesting, is it not that they are studying the Pacific War? The the, the US war against Japan in World War II. that is what they're looking at. They're studying that too. So if anyone here has any doubt that there are lessons to be learned from studying the Pacific War, for what could transpire today, in those same waters, um, bear in mind that um, the potential adversary is studying that war as well. I think that says it all.
1: Um, I would conclude with one one final thought. There was an article that that appeared in Naval History a couple of years ago on the uh, the legacy of the war of Jiao Wu. It was the first Sino-Japanese War, and the Chinese Empire was humiliated by the Japanese. And the Chinese communists today make a lot of hay out of that. And um they are not going to allow themselves to be humiliated again by a foreign power if that would be a direct challenge to the regime so that's the other thing that that concerns me if a war starts a naval war starts uh the chinese current xi jinping and the current regime uh will see that that's an existential threat to their to their rule and they will they'll fight the war to the last to the last Chinese sailor, last Chinese marine, the last Chinese airman, if they have to, in order to stay in power.
0: Let us let us all pray that this remains mere speculation. Amen, brother. Um, yeah. But it's the kind of thing you have to think about. Unfortunately, um, and it's certainly interesting when you see the lessons from the past so relevant to the potential situation today. And thank goodness we have those lessons to look back on and try to glean what we need from them to, um, carry forth. Well, Andy, it's been really compelling talking with you again. Uh, it's always well, great you. having you on the podcast and I I hope it, we're going to have you in the magazine again soon. So we have a reason to bring you back on here as well. <laughs> um, well,
1: yeah, I, I, thank you for the encouragement. It won't be long. I'll have something else in there. I'm sure. I'll,
0: we'll, we'll be watching for you. Oh, yeah. Well, Thank thanks you. for joining us again, Andrew, and uh, I recommend everybody to please read Andrew's article, on the current issue of Naval History. It's a great one. And um, there it is right there. I guess this is for us for today, folks, but we'll be back again very soon with another Naval History edition of the preceding podcast. I'm Eric Mills, signing off.